At some point, I started to suspect that doctors don't know what they're talking about when they talk about stress. Stress is supposed to be terrible for us, deadly even, so it's obviously important, but what exactly does it mean? Is it even a real scientific term? There's a sort of general understanding that stress has to do with doing too much, being too busy, having too much going on in your life. But then a lot of people were really stressed during the pandemic. And now there's a surge in emergency mental health care visits, even though the pandemic rules forced a lot of us to do less and be less busy. And then there are popular TED Talks and books on the so-called upside of stress. But if stress can kill us, then maybe those people talking about the upside of stress are really talking about something different. Something like challenge, adventure, and stimulation. Those were things that many of us got less of during the pandemic, and missing those things could be stressful. I started looking into stress more than a year ago, and I came across some disturbing things in the history of stress research. In the middle of the 20th century, researchers were funded by the tobacco companies to show that stress, rather than smoking, was causing a massive rise in heart disease. And that research led to a picture of stress as something associated with type A behavior, which was competitive, driven, ambitious type behavior. We now know that smoking was the primary cause of that big rise in heart disease. So all that research that was funded by the tobacco companies was misleading. Then I came across some scientists who were trying to find a more coherent, useful way to think about stress and health. And they're finding what types of stress actually affect the health of not just humans, but many other kinds of animals as well. That's the topic of today's episode of Follow the Science, an exploration of science, medicine, and medical misinformation. I'm your host, Faye Flam. I'm a science journalist and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and this podcast is funded by a grant from the Society for Professional Journalists. My guest today is an expert on stress across species, from whales to birds to marine iguanas. His name is Michael Romero, and he's a professor of biology at Tufts University. He told me he learned an important lesson by finding out what didn't cause stress in some animals. I first did a lot of my first research in the wild up in the far north of Alaska, and I had this idea that maybe the best way to study stress is to study it in species that are being pushed the hardest by their natural environments. And there was a long tradition in physiology of doing this. So I had this idea as an early postdoc, well, if we really want to understand stress, let's go to a similar kind of habitat. And I grew up in the desert, so I decided that I'd, I'd go to another habitat, the Arctic. And the Arctic has lots of unpredictable storms. It's cold. It's wet. It's, it's kind of a miserable place to be a lot of times of the year. And I was certainly stressed, but the <laughs> birds didn't care. And I have lots of data showing that by, basically they just don't care. I could take a blood sample in the middle of a snowstorm, and I'm not seeing any increase in any of the stress hormones. So the animals that are well adapted to the Arctic are not stressed by the conditions there because they've been adapted to it. Right. And in that's a perfect way of saying it. What I like to say is that maybe the definition of being well adapted to a habitat is that that habitat no does, doesn't cause you stress anymore. He told me there are six major factors that cause stress in animals, five of them things that happen in nature. 
One of those is bad weather, though, as he learned, Arctic animals don't consider Arctic weather to be stressful, but a very cold spell in the tropics can be stressful for the animals that live there. Then there's also predators, something we humans don't have to worry about too much these days. Starvation. Infectious disease, something we have been worried about a lot recently. And then there's also social conflict, which, if you're a social animal, as we are, can be a major source of stress. I'm assuming then that social species really need each other to survive so that there's a real threat to them if they get separated or lose their group. There's, as you might imagine, there's a real gradation of the amount of sociality there is. So, you know, you can go everything from most big cats, which are entirely solitary, like, you know, tigers. Uh, The only time a tiger will see another tiger is when it's time to mate. Otherwise, they'll fight and kill each other. And then all the way to the other end, you have things like lions, which exist in a pride and probably... You know, a single lions can survive, but it's a lot easier in a group. And then you get all the way to things like, you know, some primates where you ostracize, you know, one individual goes out on their own and they're dead very quickly. Interesting. Yes, yes. So um, that and that one seems particularly relevant to us. So those are the big five. And should we should we uh, stop there and you want to go to the sixth one later or do you want to tell me what the sixth one is now? Well, the sixth one is is uh, not it's not natural. It's us. Human-generated pollution, noise, that sort of thing. You got it. And so that's so when you think about uh, evolution and what animals were evolved to try to to have to survive. You know, they have to survive bad weather. They have to survive predation attempts, et cetera, et cetera. They don't have any real evolutionary history with dealing with things like pollution or uh, habitat destruction, things like that. But how, I wondered, does stress do us physical harm? As I learned, stress produces physical changes that can save your life, helping you run from a predator or slow down your metabolism during a famine. But with too much stress or prolonged stress or the wrong kind of stress, an animal system doesn't necessarily return to normal and those stress hormones can get out of balance and start doing real damage. So this is why a lot of people have started to break this up into both acute stress and chronic stress. So the acute stress response is always thought to be incredibly adaptive because it helps you survive predation attempts. Like where you get a lot of stress hormones and adrenaline and that way you you can move fast or do what you need to do to survive in the moment. And the moment (laughs) could be three or four days. It could be a week or two. In the case of the marine iguanas I was studying in the Galapagos, it might be a month or two where they have nothing to eat. Oh, okay. And so the stress response is maybe helping them get through that period. Correct. And then in some way in which we still don't understand, there's a transition that occurs. We don't know when it occurs. We don't really know how or why, but all of a sudden, all of the hormones that were initially really helpful to you to help you to survive start to become a problem themselves. Right. We think about that in humans. So does that happen in animals as well? That seems to take place. It seems to be much less common in wild animals, partially because if something lasts that long, it often kills the animal. That makes sense. So where do we see that kind of thing in 
wild or maybe also captive animals? Yeah, we see a lot more in captive animals because they can be subjected to these long-term stressors and they can't escape from them. That makes so much sense. That feeling of not being able to escape from something unpleasant is got to be a bad kind of stress, a kind of stress that doesn't have an upside. And many animals, especially marine mammals, are really badly adapted to live in cages or tanks. What are some of the human-generated problems that we have data on that, that can cause this chronic stress in animals? Uh, pollution, pollution in, in rivers. The fish are wonderful for these kinds of experiments, especially river fish, because if there's a spill, like a, a mining spill or something like that, you have a beautiful system in which you go above the upriver of the spill and you have your control group. And they go downriver the spill and you have your affected group. What are some of the physiological changes that you can measure? So one of the things to measure is cortisol, one of the stress hormones. And so there's this absolutely wonderful paper from a colleague of mine in which they looked at this mining spill and they looked at trout above the, the spill and below the spill and they caught them. And so they simulated sort of a predation attempt and they put them in these buckets for about 24 hours and they had exactly the same responses to being captured and put in these buckets. And at 24 hours, though, the fish above the spill were still doing fine. And they kept their cortisol levels high, and they were able to be placed back into the river. The ones below the spill at about, I think it, I'm have to, I'd have to go back and look at the data, but I think it was at about 24 hours, maybe a little earlier, 18 hours or so their entire system started to collapse and they couldn't maintain the stress hormone levels and almost all of them died. So that's actually kind of complicated. I just listened to him say this again. And from what I understand then, the pollution stress prevented the fish from surviving the additional stress being put on them when they were placed in those buckets. So the pollution stress seems to have dampened their resilience to other kinds of stress. One of the main stress hormones, cortisol, is apparently good for short-term survival, but over the long term, it can be damaging. It's part of a system that needs to be in balance. Does the cortisol itself have a negative effect on the health of humans and other animals? Most stress-related disease seems to be connected to cortisol regulation. Cortisol sounds like something that's pretty important to us, but it has to be in balance. That, that chronic stress can cause it to get out of balance then. Yeah. And here's a great example of that. Most everybody under, thinks of cortisol or really the synthetic versions of it. Cortisone uh, is, a, is a big one. Um, it's used topically and it, de it decreases inflammation. And everybody has known, gosh, really since it was first discovered, back in the 30s and 40s that cortisol has a dramatic anti-inflammatory effect and it inhibits the immune system. It can destroy different cells of the immune system and you can really create immunocompromised people, uh, which is one of the reasons why stressed people tend to get sick. What people have discovered though, is that the initial response of cortisol is actually to enhance the immune function. And so this was a, a really fascinating study in which if you look at the, at the immune cells in the blood and you start to give an individual, human or animal, a dose of, of cortisol, all of the immune cells in the body decrease in the blood. And everybody thought that that was indication of immunosuppression. 
But what was actually happening was all of those immune systems were flowing into the skin and into the tissues, getting ready for a potential invasion of a pathogen. And so what it really, what cortisol was doing was priming the immune system to be ready to fight. But after about a day or, or two days of that, the cortisol now starts to actually destroy those immune cells and destroys the ability of the spleen to produce more of these cells. And so it really is immunosuppressive, but it's in a biphasic manner. It first is immunoenhancing. It really helps the immune system get ready to fight an invasion. But then in the long run, it becomes immunosuppressive. So that's really, is that really the crux of the physiology of chronic stress? So that's a big aspect of it. Uh-huh. Yep. You have cortisol around for too long. It starts to inhibit the immune system. It starts to shut down the reproductive system, which is one of the reasons why people under stress stop ovulating and stop producing viable sperm. You know, it's one of the, seems to be one of the primary reasons of stress and, and cortisol released during stress seems to be one of the, the primary reasons why couples have trouble conceiving. Oh, interesting. Well, I could see how that could be somewhat adaptive if you're adapted to postpone childbearing until conditions improve, if, if things are very bad. Yeah, the problem comes is if you're always being stressed, which is what happens with situations where you know we do this to wild animals, where we harass them and things like that or in captivity where there's always often a, a low level of stressors that are impacting these animals and it will completely shut down reproduction. So it's one of the reasons it's so difficult to start getting captive animals to breed. And it happens in humans. There's lots and lots of evidence showing that stress just shuts down reproduction. I actually started researching stress in early 2020 before the pandemic was the big story and before I had this podcast. And back then I interviewed a fascinating marine mammal expert named Lori Marino, and she told me that people often tried to convince themselves that captive marine animals, such as killer whales or orcas, lived an easy or cushy, stress-free life in tanks at places like SeaWorld. But she's taken a closer look and says those animals are suffering terribly. They're much more prone to infectious disease than their wild counterparts. They don't live as long, and they can be so unhappy that they'll actually hit their heads against the side of the tank so hard they break their teeth. It's pretty disturbing stuff. And for them, she said the lack of stimulation and lack of social life might have been part of the source of that stress. This is something that biologist Michael Romero has also looked at. You know, and I also wanted to come back to something you mentioned, which is captive animals. And I know I talked to Lori Marino about this. I, I think I may have talked to her first and she suggested I talk to you. Now it's all seems like forever ago, February of 2020. Yeah, that was a lifetime ago. <laughs> and I wondered, you know, what studies have been done on captive animals, captive marine mammals, maybe also zoo animals, other types of animals that are adapted to living in the wild that that live in captivity? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of my grad students just finished a review paper that you might find interesting. We looked at all of the papers that had compared wild animals to captive animals of the same species. So these were, and these were animals that were truly captive. So they were born in the wild and brought into captivity, not ones that are born in a zoo or something like that. And tried to figure out, is there a pattern for how 
these newly captive animals are coping with being introduced into captivity? And the answer seems to be there is no pattern whatsoever. Each species seems to do it in a different way. One of the things I mentioned in my story from February, which I'm going to rewrite quite a bit, was that there were some interesting studies on whales and I think it was underwater noise and the fact that they they were less stressed after 9-11 or in the days when all of the ships stopped invading their territory. Yes. Yeah. That's one of my favorite papers ever. Remind me how they measured the stress. Was they, they, they found the poop of the whales, the waste products and measured stress hormones? Correct. And they found the poop because the species are the northern right whales. And apparently, I've never been out to see this, but apparently the their feces uh, floats for about a half an hour before it sinks. And it also is bright orange so people can see it. And it also stinks to high heaven. And so <laughs> what they do is they train dogs to sit in the prow of their boats and sniff the stuff. And so when the dog points his nose to the right, so looking like it's sniffing there, then the boat captain turns the wheel to the right. And pretty soon the dog just hones the boat right into where the, the whale poop is, is floating. And they take it in a big net and dip it out and can measure all kinds of hormones in it. That's a... <laughs> That is ingenious. I, you know, I was thinking there was a book, I think the author may have given some TED Talks on, on the upside of stress. And I wondered whether in a way she might've been thinking about the kinds of stress that we humans are adapted to, just like those Arctic animals are well adapted to cold, that we may be well adapted to certain types of things that, that, that actually just sort of get us going in the morning, whether it's, you know, social interactions or having a lot of tasks to do, whether, yeah. whether we're actually, that's sort of our, our more, the, the type of stress that we are well adapted to deal with. So there is a fabulous paper that just came out that I'm going to send to you uh, by Robert Sapolsky, talking about the evolution of the stress response. And the whole first third to half of the paper is about what would cause stress in wild animals and why they'd be adapted to deal with all this stuff. And then the last half of the paper is why all of that has basically been short-circuited by humans. Well, I got that paper and I read it. Dr. Sapolsky is a very famous evolutionary biologist from Stanford University, and the paper is called The Neurobiology of Stress. And in it, he gives a few really thought-provoking examples that I hadn't heard before, including Pacific salmon, who will go through an incredibly stressful process swimming upstream in fresh water in order to spawn. And doing that, they get so filled with stress hormones that it actually destroys their immune and gastrointestinal systems. And pretty quickly, they die. But that's the way evolution works. The salmon that put themselves through this leave behind lots of offspring. And a salmon that couldn't be bothered would be the end of the line. And maybe closer to home for us humans, Dr. Sapolsky also writes about baboons. Just like us, they can actually sustain physical damage from being exposed to too much stress hormone that's secreted in a chronic way because they're either isolated, bullied, or have a low rank in their dominance hierarchy. And those baboons that are exposed to all that stress hormone also have a shorter lifespan. Something similar he thinks might apply to people with chronic depression and anxiety disorders, something that looks to be on the rise in the wake of the pandemic with so much disruption in our lives. 
So I think there are some really important lessons here. Stress is obviously really important to our health and to medicine, and yet when it's used to mean different things by different people, it kind of sets us up for misinformation or misunderstanding, or information that's not particularly useful. And doctors, I think, can benefit a lot from historians of science. They're the ones who went back and dug up all of that stuff about the corrupt tobacco-funded research at the root of our understanding of stress. There's also a lot that medicine can take away from studies across other animals, not just lab rats, but all kinds of wild and captive animals. And that research has already pointed out ways that we humans can change what we do in order to stop stressing out other species in a way that's actually killing them. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam with funding by the Society for Professional Journalists. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glicksman with music by Kyle Imperator. You can follow us on Facebook for the latest, but if you'd like to hear more Follow the Science, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix.